You're listening to Think, Think, Thought, a podcast about building thinking classrooms and teaching math. Hey everyone, Kyle here with Megan. Hey guys. We're talking about chapter one and building thinking classrooms today. Uh, we just read the chapter. I don't know about you, Megan, but I need some new highlighters because, man, is there a lot of neon ink on my pages in my book? Yeah, I am with you. There's a lot of pencil marks in like the margins and stuff too. A lot of like, yes, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Yeah. At one point I had to realize, okay, you can't highlight everything in the book. It kind of just beats the purpose. <laughs> But, but honestly, that's how I felt about the chapter. You know, in this first chapter, Peter's talking about tasks that we would use in a thinking classroom. What's your quick overview of what, what he talked about in the book? Well, you know what? I would say actually for a long time, people have been talking about how tasks are the most important and tasks are good and blah, blah, blah. But I, but I think what some people really haven't focused on yet that he's really sparked like an interest for me was the idea of those three to five non-curricular tasks and more importantly, not teaching them anything really about it before, because we've always known tasks are really important if you don't teach them anything, because then that promotes those thinking. I think that's actually super important for kids and just teachers to get used to and to enjoy. And so for like anybody who doesn't know those non-curricular tasks, those are just tasks that are mathematical in nature, but n- but may not hit on specific outcomes in your curriculum when you are hitting on them. Right. Oh, and I do know Peter has recently tried to shift the terms to more of a curricular potential task, which is, I think, a better term anyways. Yeah, I like that. The curricular potential piece, it really emphasizes that this has the potential to connect to curriculum. But a lot of these tasks are so, you know, potentially open-ended that it might connect to what you're trying to get the kids to teach, but it also might go a totally different direction. But that's totally okay. And that's actually probably one of the best parts of these types of tasks. Um, what I really liked, you know, reading is, uh, I think it was on one of the first pages, he talks about problem solving or thinking is what we do when we don't know what to do. And that comes back to what you're saying. Like, we, we don't want our kids to know how to solve the task before we give it to them. And that seems so counter to everything we've ever done as math teachers leading up to this. Um, when I was still in the classroom, I wanted to make sure my kids knew how to do all the steps before I would even entertain the idea of giving them a challenging problem or a word problem. But this is totally backwards to that. This really is. And because I just feel like we want to pave the way. And I think even Peter like says, we have gone from like not even feeding the kids, but we are pre-chewing it for them and now are giving it to them, right? Because we just want them to struggle like zero. Like, you know, so it's just a shame because this is a great, kind of culmination of a lot of ideas of tasks are super important, but like I'm also the lead up is just as important. Just yeah. And, and he talks about how you want to give this task within those first five minutes of the, the class, which is so different than how I used to teach, right? I do maybe like a little warm up and then I'd spend a good chunk of time go working through examples, maybe a version of I do, we do, you do, you know, that's very prevalent in our class. Grr. I know, Grr. I know. Release yeah. of responsibility, grr. Very, very alive and very well in many classrooms today still. And I think now that we're learning, there's maybe better ways to do this. That gives teachers a lot of permission to, to try some different things. And what I really like is you start in five, the first five minutes, you are off to the races and your kids haven't had time to, to transition to that state of unengaged. Um, that passive state that is so counter to what we need them to be for thinking. Yes, absolutely. And 
I do think like an even when considering tasks, there is even a quote on page 19 that's like tasks are inert, which is just to be like, we do need kids to have them come alive. And so it is not necessarily what the task is, but what the task does. So I teach a lot. I teach currently some kindergarten, but I also teach grade five. So those tasks are very different. I wouldn't ask my grade fives to count the letters in their name and say how much more letters they have than their friend. But for what that does in the kindergarten class, that's exactly the kind of task I want. Right? So it's it's a great point. Right, the context really matters, right? Like it depends on who's in the, in the room, whether it's kids or sometimes I'm thinking about adult learners when we're talking about professional development. I like to look for the fun and exciting tasks, but I also have to think about like what do we want to actually accomplish with this task? Because different tasks can show different things or really pull out different types of learning or sharing within the classroom as well, which is a, a, a totally interesting thing you've got to be considering. Mm-hmm. Um thinking about quotes, one of my favorite, you know, it's one of my favorite parts of the book is these FAQ sections that Peter has at the end of the chapter. As I'm reading, I'm thinking of these questions. Some of them are written on the margins and I'm thinking about, okay, how am I going to handle this situation? Whatever the case is. And then you come to the FAQ and pretty much everything is tackled. He's heard it all. He's answered it. It's wonderful. Anyways, my favorite quote is all about mimicking. So in the first FAQ of this chapter, he talks about in his response, the mimicking is an addiction that is easily acquired at lower grades and difficult to give up at higher grades. And man, oh man, do we see that in our higher grade students when we try to disrupt the classroom, especially with thinking classroom practices, it is hard to shake those habits and, and their kids have become so ingrained in the game of school that, you know, and, and mimicking, which is the game of school for many of them. It was when I went through, it probably was when you went through. It's really important that we find ways to shake that up and maybe we start earlier than high school. And he continues to talk about about how mimicking tends to create short-term success without the long-term learning that allows students to make connections with other topics in the same and subsequent grades, which is so true that that mimicking is so good short-term. But we talk about that summer slide all the time, don't we? And like that summer slide is a direct result of kids only mimicking. Summer's like slide? I would say kids forget after two months. The summer slide. The weekly slide, the weekend slide, it's bad. We're always hiding because because of how the kids are learning, right? And and I think this the last part of my three-part quote, I guess, if you will, really hits that home. And he talks about how mimicking happens not alongside, but instead of thinking. So you can't have them working together in the same classroom, in the same context. Surely kids can do it in different situations at different times in their you know year, but but why wouldn't we want them thinking? as much as we possibly can, especially since we know thinking is going to lead to some longer term connections and deeper understanding. And then our kids really start to build a strong foundation, not a cracked foundation, not one that's crumbling already from the start. It's a foundation that they can build a strong house, if you'll humor me with this metaphor of mathematical knowledge that they can continue to build and add expansions and all these different things. I would agree completely. And so I guess for like um, context, I teach a four or five like math class, but I can pretty much point which kids are thinking and which kids are mimicking at any given moment because you can actually visibly see it. But also those kids who love to mimic, it's just because it's just easy. However, once you kind of break the nut or the shell, so (laughs) humor me in my analogy of some sort of shell cracking open, 
Um, however, that I think for me, once they break open, they're just like, oh my gosh, this is what I'm thinking is. And they love it. And they're just engrossed because, because I do think it is sometimes people struggle getting kids specifically. And I think you would agree kids grade eight or up or grade seven plus struggle at times with this because it's easier to mimic. It is. But once they get that idea to think is to grow and make connections and develop, I think it's just blows the lid right off of it. There's another analogy. We got lids, houses, shells, nuts, the whole kitten caboodle. But speaking of questions, because you were mentioning the unfrequently like mass ones, um, do you have like many questions about the You know, the chapter? question that we hear the most and the one that I think many people who are starting this book think about is like, these tasks sound awesome. But where the heck do you end up? Where do these tasks come from? I don't have a book that I can sign out of my school's library that has tasks that we can just start using. So so where do you find your tasks? Well, actually, first, the the place where I find a lot of tasks is actually just in the um, textbook. So there is this beautiful part in our Math Makes Sense textbook called the um, Explorer, which everybody skips over because obviously that'd be crazy. That's a great task right there. <laughs> But um, I would say normally there are word problems or there are some sort of challenge questions in every chapter of every math textbook. Those are great questions. You just don't have to teach the kids about it right before. Just don't teach them how to solve it. That's right. 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 And I think a lot of the resources that teachers have, whether it's Math Makes Sense or whatever textbook or resource they're using, a lot of those questions can be easily adapted to be a little more open-ended, maybe a little bit more suitable for a thinking classroom environment. Where, where else do you find them? There's many websites. There's Open Middle by Robert Kaplinsky. The Graham Fletcher has some great three-act tasks. Nat Banting has this menu math, and he's fantastic. But there's actually, well, you and I created a a collection of tasks through, I guess, bit.ly slash SK math tasks. And we have what somewhere between 800 to 1,000 K to 12 math tasks that have been tagged by outcome. So when teachers come to me, because they will often come and be like, tasks, tasks, tasks. I'm like, go to the website first, go to our um, database, check it out, check whichever outcome you need. And there's usually something there that's a good starting point. And if it is not exactly what you need, at the end of the day, just keep doing the tasks because the more you do them, the more the tasks just show up better. Also, Peter is currently writing a um, six to 12 t tasks book, and I am actually co-authoring his K to five tasks book, which will be coming out in the next year or so. So that is something that you guys should certainly look out for because that will be also a huge help. Yeah, we're very excited to see what that ends up looking like. And I think the more you get into thinking classrooms and the more that you see tasks and try tasks, the more you start to realize the tasks are everywhere. And if we get the kids thinking, they'll start to think about anything we throw at them. And it doesn't have to be real world. It can be a little trivial. It can be a little goofy. But as long as it's interesting to the kids in the room at that time, you can get them thinking and you can do a lot of really interesting math. So that was the question that I hear. That's a question that I hear a lot. What kind of questions do you run into? Um, well, a question that I run into all the time, because right now I'm at two schools. So I spend mornings at one and then afternoons at another. And a lot of people come up to me and want to know what makes a good task or like if this is a good task. So do you have anything for them? I do. You know, when Peter talks about a few of the pieces in the book, um, he talks about 
having low floor and high ceiling tasks. And I think that's just a really fancy way of making sure tasks are accessible to every kid that's in the room. There's an entry point no matter what level of mathematical understanding they're at. But also once they're in their task, that task, there's a lot of room to continue to move upwards and progress through some interesting different math concepts. I think that's one of the key pieces that's really important to these tasks. There needs to be not necessarily just a right or a wrong answer, but multiple different ways to get to it, at least multiple different ways to get to it, and maybe multiple different answers, which is really exciting. I think he talks about some of these examples have you know, hundreds of different solutions that could be valid. I think of open middles. They, they're a great way of thinking about that. But you know, further to that, there's some other things that you want to look out for, or maybe if you're thinking about developing your own tasks that you want to keep in mind. And one of them is constraints. Constraints are these beautiful things that, that really actually allow us to get our kids thinking more. A good example is a task that I did with some grade threes yesterday, I'm just getting them used to thinking classrooms. And, and I gave them some numbers. I gave them a two, a four, an eight, and a three. I just wrote them up on a board. And I said, these are the only numbers you're allowed to use. Find a way to make five. So, you know, they come up with a few different ways. They got two and three. They got eight minus five in, or eight minus three. And they've got all these different ways. And, say, and then I say, okay, how about six? How about seven? How about eight? And we just keep going and going and going. And then eventually we just shuffle the, the numbers up and say, come up with your own four numbers and see what you can come up with. That's a really interesting way of how a constraint makes a task really interesting and really focuses their thinking. The other thing with, within constraints, you need some choice. So you can't have so many constraints that there's only one way to do this. You want the kids to be able to, to have some freedom and some choice within it. And then the last piece, and you know, Peter talks about this a little bit in the book, and we definitely heard him talk about it. And there needs to be some ambiguity, some, some interpretation that needs to happen. And you know, some uncertainty that the kids have to navigate I guess you don't necessarily need this, but but I find it makes for a much more interesting experience. One of the tasks that you'll see later in the book he talks about is how many sevens. It's a wonderful task. I love to use it all the time, but there's always like some misinterpretation. Is it how many numbers have a seven in it? Or is it how many times you wrote the number seven? Mm-hmm. Is it multiples of seven? Do those count? You know, all these different things. And you just let it kind of happen. And you've seen that before. Do you have any other tasks that would hit those things? One that I've like used, and I will use this, um, I will probably use a version of this task, anything kindergarten to grade five or six as the first task is how or how many animals. I always say like how many legs, but it's not how many legs because you're telling them the like, legs, but it's the how many animals. So like it's like, all right, folks, I live um, on this um, farm, right? And you live on this farm. And I always say this is a magical farm and anything can live there, which really gives that freedom to like whatever you want on this farm, man. Is it's cool. So I say, let's say I have, so I was doing it with kinders. Um, there's six legs on, on my um, farm. What could live there? If I was doing grade one, I would say 12. If I was doing grade three or two to five, I might say 24. Um, but then from there, it's like you can pretty much come up with anything. And that freedom aspect gets hilarious because then you start saying, what if there's 25? And they're like, what? That's an odd number. So then people are chopping off like legs of like chickens and who knows what they're doing. There's a three like legged dog hanging out. It's awesome. But that is the beautiful thing about the ambiguity, right? But the freedom. And also it is a low floor task. Everybody can make an animal. You can tell me how many legs a chicken has, right? Anybody can start that, but you can get very deep. And I've been like, oh, you know what? I've got 18 like legs, but there needs to have at least one animal that has more than four legs. And they're like, what? So they have a like, like octopus or they've got all sorts of things. Yeah. <laughs> or 
And you know, like if I was born and raised in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, and there was a like an eight-legged cow, so that could totally have happened. <laughs> There's an eight-legged cow in in our museum at the MSU. <laughs> so anything goes. I think one of the tasks that I've really enjoyed doing lately is just a modification on the how many handshakes problem, if you've seen it, which I'll give you the best version of it. We have students get together, get them up and moving. We stand at the front of the class or in the middle of the classroom, depending on the setup. And I get two volunteers and we say, okay, we're at a high five party. Everyone at the high five party, high fives everyone else. How many high fives happen? And honestly, there's so much debate there. Two people at the high five party, you know, there's one high five happening, but they each gave one high five. So does that count as two? So there's, so, so there's some definitions that have to be established and we let them work through that. Then I say, okay, we got a third person come on in and they demonstrate how many high fives there are or they try to hash it out. And then we go to four and then we go to five and somewhere between four and five, either or, it all falls apart. They can't count. They can't keep track of it. It gets a little bit messy. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we work through it. It takes longer than it, you know, you think it should, but it's a beautiful way to show there's some ambiguity here and we got to maybe be a little intentional about how we're going to do this. And then from there, I say, now there's 12 people at the party. Grab a card. Let's figure this out. And then we're up the races. And the thing that I like about that that connects to what makes that a good task is like it's very accessible. Every kid in there could act this out. They could draw a picture. They can get there. We started really low. We kind of did some scaffolding in the demonstration. Uh, The constraint ends up being that there's not enough people in the room to really demonstrate this and difficult to go about doing. But, you know, one of the degrees of freedom here is there's so many different ways to represent this and act this out. And maybe people are doing tables of values. Maybe people are drawing these crazy, like, polygons on the board and trying to dance. It's beautiful. Wild. It's wild on there. So there's a lot of different types of good tasks out there. And they're really exciting. I think, you know, I think this is a point where we want to wrap things up a little bit, but we'd love to hear from you about what your favorite task is and maybe why it's a good task. That would be something yes. we'd love to hear and share with the greater community Send here. It on. Send it on. Thanks for tuning in to Think Thank Thunk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a new episode. And as always, keep thinking, keep thinking, and keep thunking.